Welcome to the March of History. As always, I am your host, Trevor Furness, and we pick back up this week with episode 13, right where we left off last week with episode 12. And that is getting ready for a showdown in the Senate between Gaius Julius Caesar and Marcus Portius Cato over the fate of the conspirators in the Catiline Conspiracy. If you remember, I had said last week that we recorded this whole thing as a two-hour episode, and for everybody's sake, we have split it into two parts. You've heard the first part already. That was episode 12 last week. And now we pick right back up where we left off with episode 13, getting ready for that Senate showdown between our protagonist and, at least in the story of Caesar's life, our antagonist, Cato. So without further ado, here we go. Now going into this, you remember we talked about the trial of Rabirius a few episodes back, that whole confusing thing where they used the archaic charge of Perdulio to charge that Senator Rabirius of a crime that he committed 36 years ago. Well, Caesar's whole point then was to prove that the president set in killing senators without a trial because the ultimate decree is passed, you know, almost like their version of martial law was a dangerous one and one that should not be set. And he wanted to set the record straight that people that did that would and could be prosecuted by the populares. And so that's hanging over all the Senate's heads. They know that, you know, if they step wrong on this, you know, Caesar's given them a lesson that they can't willy nilly execute people without trial just because they have this act passed. And that just happened like in this earlier this year. So it's fresh on people's minds. Now, Cicero gets up as the consul and he basically punts. He asks the Senate for their opinion, saying that he will do whatever they want, but he favors execution. Now, in his own mind, with the ultimate decree passed, their martial law, he has the right to execute these citizens, in his mind at least. But he doesn't want the backlash. He doesn't want everybody to be af- afterwards to say, whoa, you know, we didn't want this. Cicero did it. And you know, we just didn't say anything. You know? And he didn't want them to be able to turn on him. So he wanted the Senate to be complicit in this with him and to vote and say yes so that you know, if there was ever an issue about it later, Cicero could say, well, you guys all agreed to it. But he does recommend that he prefers the execution. Now, strictly speaking, and it, it's tough to, you know, nobody's an expert on ancient Roman legal opinion. Anybody that claims to be is lying because, I mean, there's just so much nuance to it that we don't know and so much information lost today that anybody that definitively says this or that is probably full of it, in my opinion at least. But from my understanding, execution without a trial, even with the ultimate decree passed, is illegal for citizens. And it really can't be done, despite the fact that Cicero believes that he has the right to do it. The other thing that Caesar had tried to show in that Rabirius trial was that the person who had been killed or claimed to be killed by Rabirius was a tribune of the plebs. Tribune of the plebs are considered inviolable. They weren't allowed to be attacked. They weren't allowed to be manhandled, touched. They were sacred, almost godlike, because they were the defenders of the people and they were never supposed to be touched. And this man, Saturninus, was a tribune. And the populares made the point that it doesn't matter what decree is passed. You cannot kill a tribune of the plebs. That's sacrilege. So just want to make sure everybody understands that as well. But 
the reason Cicero advocates for execution is that even though these guys are obviously guilty, there's so much bribery in the Roman law courts that a trial, even with all this evidence, is uncertain. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems odd that, and I know it's there's still some of this tradition that carries over to today, but that the tribune of the, of the plebs, it'd be that unheard of for them to get prosecuted for anything. I wonder like how that that started out up and why that was. Oh no, it's not that they can't be prosecuted. Caesar's not worried about people prosecuting them. He's worried about them like killing them without a trial. Like they're not supposed to be touched. Okay. You're not supposed to punch one. Like you'll like you'll be exiled from the city for punching a tribune of the plebs, and they put one to death without a trial. Okay, how about with a trial? Could you? Is that? I don't even know. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, after Cicero speaks. The way it works is, you know, current consul speaks and then the consuls elect, you know, the guys who are elected for next year get up and speak. And then all the ex-consuls, after them goes the praetors, then the praetor elects, and then the ex-praetors. And so the very first person to speak after Cicero is a guy named Junius Silanus. And he is the, like I said, the consul elect. And he argues for the, quote, extreme penalty. And everybody takes this to mean death. And all the other ex-consuls and consul-elect all agree, you know, put these guys to death, put them to death, put them to death. They all agree that, you know, this is scary times. This is what we need to be doing. End the conspiracy here and now, put them to death. And everybody agrees on this until they get to Caesar, who has been elected praetor. So he's a praetor-elect. So you can see that the higher up you get in this whole hierarchy, the earlier on you get to speak. And the more often you get to speak, because they often, they're not going to wait for everybody to speak, you know, even the backbenchers. So Caesar gets to speak now, and he argues against setting the president for killing citizens without a trial. He, he makes the point that, sure, yes, I trust Cicero as a consul, and I don't think that he's going to abuse that right, but who knows who's going to come in the future and be consul, and will they be so you know, moral and righteous with that ability to put citizens to death? without a trial. You can't know who's going to come in the future. And that's, you know, the whole argument against autocracy in general is like, yes, you may have a great leader now, but, you know, it's not always going to be that way. Eventually, there's going to be a bad person in office. So so what Caesar does is he argues for the seizure of their lands and properties and to imprison these men in the towns of Italy, throughout Italy, of Cicero's choosing. So Cicero could choose whatever towns he wants these guys to be held at. And once Catiline's plot is put down, then in a legal manner, they can handle the case of these conspirators. But you know they shouldn't be handled until Catiline is put down. And they shouldn't be executed right away because he says that's not legal and sets a terrible precedent for the Republic. Yeah, it's interesting at this point, you would think like, they would realize maybe they should have a jail or someplace to keep them in. It just seems bizarre that they... I mean, I don't know if that was part of the... Yeah, so it's kind of like Caesar's, Caesar's almost ahead of his time, you know, keep them in prison versus the Romans were like, prison? What's that? <laughs> now, was, I mean, was prison just not a thing at all in, 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 in these times and no one did it? Or was it like, it just seems odd. The Romans didn't, at least. They did have a jail. It was like an old cistern, which is where they would store water or liquids. And uh, Salus says that it stank of, of death and, and filth. But it was in the forum, and they would like lower people into it, and that's where they would execute people or hold them prisoner for very small amounts of time, though. But I mean, there's different stories of like 
people's friends just coming and like lifting them out of the <laughs> out of the jail, <laughs> and it doesn't seem to have been that secure. But this I, is a it's a very courageous act of Caesar because you have think about it you have all the august consuls and ex consuls going up to the generations all in agreement that these people need to die and that's the right thing to do. And Caesar, being in maybe his mid thirties or early thirties, gets up and goes against all of them and gives this speech saying, No, you're all wrong, and that really these people, you know, that's unRoman to put them to death. And the Senate historically had a lot of respect for people throughout their history that had been able to had who had basically stood on their own on an issue and by the end had been able to convince the rest of the Senate to come over to their side. That was something that every senator wished at one point in their, in their life to do. And here Caesar does it. And what happens is Salinas, you know, the original consul said the extreme penalty says, well, uh, you know, after he hears Caesar speak, he goes, I actually meant imprisonment by the extreme penalty because that's the extreme penalty for Romans. <laughs> and then <laughs> the rest of the consuls start going, well, yeah, that's what I meant as well. You know, oh, of course, you know, not death. I meant the extreme penalty, you know, I meant prison. Yeah, it makes me wonder, I mean, did it, Salinas intentionally make an ambiguous statement just to uh, to weave himself the option to swing either way? I've often wondered the same. And then also... Would the rest of the Senate have swung if if Salinas did not swing? So I mean, if what was it just Caesar, and they would have swung from what he said, or was it that Salinas thought that's what Caesar, you know, after hearing what Caesar said, swung that way, and then everyone else did? I think I mean I would say it was Caesar because I don't think if if Caesar doesn't give that speech, then Salinas doesn't change his mind, you know? Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, yeah. But I, I wonder. Even if Salinas didn't say anything, if the, the Senate would still... Maybe they would have, I don't, I don't know. Well, I'll say what's more, even Cicero's own brother, Quintus, who was also a praetor-elect, same age as Caesar or, or similar age, he agreed, He changed his mind and agreed with Caesar as well. So even Cicero's own, own brother wasn't supporting the death penalty at this point. The only person that doesn't change their mind, or I guess there's two of them, is uh, C- Cicero himself and then Catullus, obviously, because he hates Caesar's guts. Huh. Yeah, so I'm surprised that well, that's that's interesting that Catullus would. I guess at this point he's not really friends with uh, Catiline anymore. No, I think they've. I mean, when Catiline left, he uh, asked Catullus to look after his wife and kids, but that's I think that's kind of the end of their friendship. Okay, I'm surprised that Cicero would, if he he started off just going out what what did the Senate think should happen, and then after they swing the other way. He no longer swings with them. You would think that if he if he was worried to begin with about what the Senate thought and wanted to be aligned with them, that he wouldn't take a stand with this more extreme measure of uh, executing. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's quite taken a stand yet. You know, I think he's just he, he's he's doing everything yeah. in. in uh, he's being the moderate that he is. You know, he's trying to be consul for all and please all sides, which is very tough to do in politics. But I have actually Salus writes a good, I mean, he says all of the speech that Cato and I'm sorry, that uh, Caesar gives. So I think it would be worth reading a, at least a portion of that to give you an idea of the kind of things that he was saying. It's not, I mean, most times in history, you don't have, you know, from ancient history, the actual speeches that people said. And is it 100% accurate? I don't know. But, you know, this guy was a contemporary, so I don't think it's going to be so far off. Caesar said, quote, 
Every bad president has arisen from some good circumstance. But when command passes to those ignorant of it, or to the less good, any new president is transferred from the deserving and appropriate to the undeserving and inappropriate. He then continues with an example, quote, The Lacedaemonians, or the Spartans, imposed on the defeated Athenians 30 men to handle their commonwealth. At first, these 30 men began to execute without trial all the worst individuals and those resented by all. The people were delighted and said it was deserved. But after, when their license had gradually increased, they killed good and bad indifferently, at whim and terrified the rest with dread. So a community which had been oppressed by slavery paid a heavy penalty for its foolish delight. And then he gives an example of something similar happening in their own time. Quote, In our recollection, who did not praise Sola's deed when he ordered the butchering of Damaspus and the others of his kind, whose growth had been to the detriment of the commonwealth? They said that the factious criminals who had stirred up the commonwealth by their rebellions had been deservedly executed. But that affair was the start of a great disaster. For whenever anyone desired someone's home or villa or, ultimately, his goblet or garment, he did his best to ensure that the man was listed amongst the proscribed. So those for whom Damascus's death had been a source of delight were themselves dragged off shortly after, and there was no end to the butchery until Sola had satisfied all his supporters with riches. I do not fear these things in Marcus Tullius's case, nor in these times, but in a great community, dispositions are many and varied. It is possible that, at another time, and under another consul in whose hands there is likewise an army, something false will be believed to be true. When after this president a consul draws his sword in accordance with a senate's decree, who will decide the ending for him? Who will restrain him? End quote. So essentially saying you're going to set this bad precedent that's going to be there for all time. And even though Cicero may be a you know, good judge of character and somebody's not going to abuse this right, people in the future will. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's an interesting thing for Caesar to say. Because I mean, yeah, it's, it's along, along the same lines as like wanting to, you know, have a republic in the first place versus, uh, you know, some other form of more autocratic government. Yeah, it's kind of ironic in that way. He would be the guy that would bring down the Republic, in a way at least. I mean, not the only one, but but he goes on to say, and, and this isn't so relevant to Catiline, but it's just interesting. He goes on to say, quote, Our ancestors' contract fathers were never destitute of counsel or daring, nor did haughtiness stand in the way of their imitating others' institutions, provided only that they were virtuous. They borrowed arms and military weapons from the Samnites, many of their magistrates' insignia from the Etruscans. In short, they pursued with enthusiasm at home whatever seemed suitable anywhere amongst allies or enemies. They preferred to imitate success rather than to resent it. I like that last line. They preferred to imitate success rather than to resent it. And the Romans did. They took things from everybody, everywhere. Yeah, no, that's... that's in general, in life, that's a good thing to do to, uh, you know, you see someone that does something better, you don't hate on them, but you you learn from it. Yeah, tough, easier said than done, though, right? A lot of people don't do that. 
and especially for society to do, you know, especially one that, and, and that's where Rome's another contradiction. They're so traditional. They don't like change very much, but they're also very good at adapting and taking even their enemies, things that are better than what they do. You know, they're, the Romans are a big contradiction. I mean, like most societies. So everybody's agreeing with Caesar at this point, with a few exceptions. Caesar swung them all to his side via his uh, great eloquence and public speaking. And everybody continues to go down the line until they get to ex-quaestors. And when Cato gets up to speak, Cato's even younger than Caesar at this point. And he, Cato's not there to make friends, as always. He attacks Salanius for changing his mind, and he really goes after Caesar. He says Caesar's trying to convince the Senate with fine words of humanity, but really he's trying to protect himself because he you know, suspects Caesar's in on this conspiracy, and that's why he's advocating for mercy on these conspirators. Cato ends up swinging the entire Senate back in their original direction. And they all start saying, well, actually, no, I believe that death is the right course of action now. So, you know, Caesar swung them one way, Cato swings them the, the exact opposite way. But what essentially what he's saying is that we have conspirators within our city. We have an army in Italy preparing to march on Rome. And yet we're deliberating on whether to kill these people who, who have confessed to their own guilt in this conspiracy, this parasite against, you know, their own country. And then he gives an example, you know, back in the day, so-and-so that commander killed his own son for being too aggressive in fighting Rome's enemies. And that yet we sit here hesitating to kill people that have plotted against their country. What kind of bizarre world is this? That man killed his own son who was too aggressive in fighting the enemy. And we are hesitant to kill these people that aren't our own sons, obviously, and are guilty of all sorts of crimes. Yeah, you know, it's pretty crazy that... But you'll notice he's not... Cato is not arguing... He's more arguing from emotion than anything, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is something that angers some of the popularities like Caesar. Like, he's all about, this is, you know, the Roman constitution, this is the Roman customs, you must follow them all the time, by the book, and there is no exception. And But then... When he decides arbitrarily in his head that all of the Roman customs can be thrown out and we can just execute people without a trial, then it's okay. You know, it's only when Cato decides it's okay to break all the rules, then it's okay. Right. So I wonder what it was that triggered Cato to take that sense. Like, could have gone either way. And, you know, since he chose this this side, he dug his heels in uh, on that side. Or is it. Is it like, uh, you know, is this some like part of some bigger belief or some, uh, you know, bigger ideal? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it comes down to as simple as Caesar chose one side, so he chose the other. I don't know. <laughs> so you think at this point it was maybe Caesar-based? Uh, I think that's unfair to Cato. I think he did believe what he was saying. But why? I mean, he doesn't give much of his reasonings. He just says that... Essentially saying that, you know, if we don't kill these guys now, then we're just harboring enemy in our midst while an army marches in our city. You know, like he's basically saying, speaking practically, it's stupid to keep these guys alive, which he's not wrong. But Caesar's yeah. looking at the longer term precedent of killing them. And what is that like? Okay, so then you survive today, but your republic's over tomorrow because you gave too much power to the consuls. Right. Now, Caesar doesn't give up and he keeps arguing. They're going back and forth and it gets pretty heated between them and they're not sitting far from each other, Cato and Caesar. And a comical incident, or what I think is a comical incident, occurs during this whole thing. At one point, somebody comes into the Senate House and they give Caesar a note during this argument. And Caesar opens it and reads it, and Cato, who's speaking, gets angry. 
and he demands that Caesar hand it over. And Caesar says, I'd rather not, or demurs. He, he says, no, I don't want to. And Cato demands that he hand it over because he expects it's a letter from one of the conspirators right now. You know, Caesar's part of this conspiracy. And so Caesar says, all right, and then he hands over this letter to Cato, and Cato reads it. And it is a love letter from Servilia, Cato's half-sister, to Caesar. And Cato looks at it and just loses his mind, and he, he, he throws it back at Caesar and yells, take it back, you drunk, <laughs> which is a bizarre insult. and must have been the only thing he could think to say because Caesar was famous for not getting drunk, and Cato was famous for drinking too much. So the fact that Cato is calling Caesar a drunk is kind of funny. And just Caesar, you know, with all the dignity, picks up the letter and uh, it doesn't say a word about it. But Cato kind of dug his own grave on that one. So, I mean, after that, I mean, who, which side does the Senate end up siding with? The Senate sides on Cato's side. So they do still go with Cato, huh? Yeah, they do go with Cato's side. Now, I think, in my opinion, Caesar was making the harder argument to appeal to logic and thinking of the future versus Cato was kind of fear-mongering. You know, it's always easy to fear monger and scare people into doing whatever their emotions are. It's much tougher to get them to slow down and think of, you know, where those actions will lead them. But Cato does win the battle in the Senate, and the Senate decides to confiscate all property and to uh, put them all to death. As Caesar says, this is unfair to take the most severe part of his argument and leave out all the mercy. You know, the most severe part of his argument was confiscating their property, but nobody agrees with him. And Caesar tries to appeal to some of the tribunes, and they won't, they won't veto it either. Finally, Cicero, you know, he wants Caesar on their side. He doesn't want Caesar stirring up the people against what's about to happen here. So Cicero looks to appeal Caesar and removes the confiscation of the property from the vote. But Caesar's not happy, and he continues to block proceedings until, and this is a bizarre, this is what happens, it's very bizarre here, a body of Equites, so these are like the Roman knights, basically, rush into the Senate, and they're acting as bodyguards for Cicero during this whole conspiracy, and they have weapons. Now, that's not really legal for them to have weapons in Rome, even during the time of all this. They're not supposed to have weapons in Rome, especially not in the Senate house, and they rush in with swords, and they start going at Caesar. Exactly why, I don't know. But they, they, they draw their swords and they actually start swinging, taking swings at Caesar and trying to chop him down on the floor of the Senate. And apparently a lot of Caesar supporters flee out of the building. Caesar himself, a few of his close friends gather around him and try to protect him. One account says that one of his friends threw a cloak over him and kind of speared him away during all the confusion. At one point, the uh, bodyguards look to Cicero for approval, and Cicero shakes his head no, as if, like, you shouldn't do that. Like, why are you doing that? And, C- and Caesar escapes the Senate, but, you know, he almost got cut down on the floor of the Senate in a city where weapons are banned altogether by the, the bodyguards of the consul. And Caesar is so angry about this, and maybe even scared about this, that he doesn't attend the Senate for the rest of the year. Yeah, I mean, that is ridiculous. I mean, the the very thing that they're trying these other people for these um, conspirators is, is rising up and killing people in the Senate. And then how do they respond? They, you know, they have these people with weapons in the Senate try to kill Caesar who's part of the Senate. So uh, it is like ridiculous. And that's where I'm getting at. Yes. You know, Caesar will be the guy that marches on Rome and, and gets a bad rep for that. But when you learn the story along the way of how hypocritical the people that he was going against were, you know, and how, because 
they are, you know, he's supposed to be the agent of change and new things, and they are supporters of rule and law and order. But it, I mean, it's complete hypocrisy because you know nobody nobody complains. Is Cato complaining that they tried to butcher Caesar on the floor of the Senate? No, and that they were Cicero's bodyguards. Now, do you think if if Caesar himself had a bunch of armed guards run into the the meeting and try to you know attack Cato with swords? That that wouldn't have been like blown up into epic proportions, and they would have tried to arrest Caesar and put him on trial and put him to death, almost certainly, right? But because it was the side of the optimists that had done it, it's okay. We'll overlook it. So I, I mean, in that sense, is it did the optimists somehow have some kind of uh, power that the popularities don't have when it comes to? I I don't know. It's like why why is it that? They would be able to blow it up like that, but then it's a good Caesar question. and the popularians are not able to to do that. I think that the optimates had a lot of moral authority because they always extolled the traditions of Rome, and even the people of Rome, though they may want change on some things, are very suspicious of change. And politicians like Caesar that do try to change things will always have to wrap whatever new things they're doing in a cloak of the old saying well, I'm not really bringing back I'm not really bringing in a new land law I'm bringing back this old land law that we had in our you know in our grand, great great grandfather's time you know and you always got to make it seem like it's something old I'm guessing there's also a lot more optimists than there are populares simply because you know they benefit from the status quo and so they don't want the status quo to change um, I don't think there's as many populares Oh really I didn't I didn't realize that, that there were more. That's a guess on my part. I don't really know. And also the popularity tradition was almost extinct after Sola. You know, Sola was killing these people left and right. So I'm guessing there would be less of them for that reason as well. And Sola, he was an optimate then? He was definitely an optimate. He was the head of the optimates, which again is embarrassing because they are supposed to be the defenders of, you know, what's right in Rome. And here, you know, their chief guy is marching on Rome with an army, making himself dictator and butchering citizens in the street to steal their property and, and feed his minions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's just like, yeah, I mean, the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. But also, he's someone who hangs out with people that he would kind of associate, right, more with uh, the populares. Yeah, yeah, it's it's never simple with these guys. You know, they're all complex characters, which is what makes them so interesting, though. Yeah. So Caesar, you know, he leaves the Senate after that. And I don't think I would have returned either. If they try to kill me in the floor of the Senate, I'd be like, I'm out, guys. <laughs> and so Caesar says, I'm not coming back for the rest of the year. You know, I guess yeah. he figures he'd come back as a praetor, you know, but he, he's done with this mess. So who actually ordered the the equids to It's unclear. Caesar? Because I, I wouldn't think that Cicero would ever do something like that. No, he's Cicero too. wouldn't. I don't think he would either. And it, no, no source says Cicero orders it. They say these guys are just like a bunch of hot-headed young bloods just taking it upon themselves to to rush in there, and draw their sword, and start going at Caesar. <laughs> and, uh, and one source does say it's because they were real angry from like the rumors that Catullus was spreading about Caesar. You know, maybe there was like they thought, well, he's like one of the conspirators and now he's blocking these conspirators from dying. That's why we just go in there and kill him, you know, something along those lines. Or, I mean, it gets very confusing because some of these sources just completely contradict each other. There's other sources that say that 
it was actually when Caesar was leaving the Senate House that a, a group of like young equites set upon him with swords because they hated him. But mostly they say that you know it was in the Senate itself and that there were Cicero's bodyguards. But talk about foreshadowing too, because I think I mean I think we yeah. all know how Caesar dies, stabbed on the floor of the Senate, and here, what 20, 30 years earlier, I don't know how many years this is before his actual death, it almost happens. Yeah, I mean, imagine if it did, how things would have changed. Yeah, and Plutarch says that many lamented later on during the Republic that Cicero had not put Caesar to death during the Cadillac conspiracy when he had the chance. Really? Yeah. Huh, I wonder at what point that was. I mean, I guess we won't go into it now, but... Yeah, we'll get into that later, I guess. But uh, So they vote to put these guys to, to death. Cicero goes to where Lentulus is kept as basically the highest ranking of the conspirators, and he leads him by the hand down to the forum, through the street down to the forum, and to that cistern. Um, I forget what it's called exactly. But they lower these guys in, and then they either break their neck or strangle them with a noose, one by one. And apparently, Cicero looked around the forum as he was doing this, and he saw many of the known conspirators in the forum watching this. And so he didn't even want to make an announcement that these people were going to be killed because he's afraid there would be a rush to try and save them. And so all these conspirators looking around the forum are thinking, well, you know, they're being kept in the, like, the little prison, the cistern, and we'll just you know, free them later tonight. And Cicero didn't want to let them know that, no, we're actually killing them right now. <laughs> and uh, they kill them one by one. And at the end, Cicero gets up on the rostra, I think, or gets in front of the people at least that are gathered in the forum because he did all this very quietly, but still the people knew something was up, something was happening and a crowd had gathered and Cicero says simply they have lived, which is in Roman times, I guess they had a, it was bad luck to mention death. So you would say they have lived, you know, to say like they're not living anymore, but you wouldn't talk about them dying. So he says simply they have lived. And at this point, the general population of Rome goes wild for Cicero. We are told that originally they, Salus says they supported Catiline because they figure, you know, what do they have to lose from this rebellion? And maybe they can gain some things. But then when they found out about one of Lentulus and, and Catiline's plots was to set fires throughout the city, well, that changed their mind completely because fires take what little these people have. You know, all they have is their artisan tools what few objects they had to do their work in their house and setting fires around the city would steal what little they do have. So now they felt like from this conspiracy, they had probably more to lose than to gain. So then they switched on the Cicero's side and they started cheering him. And the Roman crowd is known to be very fickle like this. And so as Cicero walks home from the forum, I mean, people line the whole way. They light the whole way for him. They, they light torches and, and lamps on the rooftops and in doorways and in windows and they light the whole way because it's nighttime for him all the way back to his house. And everybody leans out of windows and they cheer him. And, and he's accompanied by all of the most august senators in, in the Republic leading him back to his house. And they hail him as the father of his country and actually give him that title and confirm him with it. And uh, Cato himself confirms his title to a crowd that Cicero is the father of his country. And Cicero claimed this as his finest hour. Even to his dying day, he'll say this was his finest hour. Uh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they give him so much credit. I mean, he, he did decide to put them to death, and he was the only consistent one. 
but I, I wonder, like, I mean, there's a lot more that I, th- I thought that went into finding out, rooting out these people and, and actually stopping the rebellion than just deciding to put the, to execute these people. Well, I think that if, you know, first of all, you got to remember everybody's hysterical because they're all terrified that the Senate knew only so much. And you got to imagine your average citizen in Rome knows even less. And rumors are probably spreading like wild, right? So they don't fully understand what's going on. Everybody does know that Cicero has been talking about this conspiracy forever now. And everybody thought he was a joke at first. You know, they weren't taking it seriously. And now apparently it's become all too clear. Uh, It's serious. And so Cicero is, you know, he, he refused to let everybody's mocking defeat him. And with very little bloodshed, you know, he has put down the rebellion within Rome. No fires, no senators butchered outside of the conspirators themselves. It was very well handled in many people's opinions. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I kind of forgot there at first that this had started off as just a rumor and sister is going to accuse of just uh, making this up to... To create a crisis that he could solve, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. not everybody agrees with Cicero, and, and shortly after this whole crisis, people will start to accuse him of you know putting citizens to death without a trial, and uh, that will dog him for the rest of his life. <laughs> so... You know, like anything in Rome, you got your supporters, you got your uh, naysayers, and uh, many people believe what Caesar believed. So now we go back to Catiline, right? He's with his army in Etruria, and he's got about 20,000, you might call them soldiers or rabbles, you know, they're either Sola veterans that haven't made any money from farming and are bankrupt, or they're robbers and brigands that have decided to join up to try and get some loot, or they're just, you know, opportunists, um, a mixture of all these people, right? But maybe only one-fourth of them are armed, about 5,000 of them out of (laughs) 20,000. So it's not much of an army, right? And after the news of the executions happen, many of these people actually flee the army altogether, and they disappear. And Catiline's left with, you know, a fraction of what he originally had. I don't know what number, maybe the, you know, the 5,000, maybe more, but everybody, you know, pretty much flees. And you remember I said at the end of last episode that... Cicero commissions Antonius, his co-consul, this is Antonius Hybrida, to take an army that was waiting for their triumph outside of Rome and march on Catiline's position. Cicero is not a military man. For, he didn't want this honor. Any other senator, like Julius Caesar, would have jumped at this opportunity, you know? But Cicero didn't like to leave Rome. And he, he, he orders Hybrida to do it. And those two actually had a unique arrangement in which Cicero made him a deal early on where Cicero drew in because they would draw a lottery of which province they would go to. And Cicero drew a very wealthy province. And he basically told Hybrida or Antonius Hybrida, like, hey, I'll give you my province if you stay out of my way this entire year and just let me do what I want and support whatever I do. And Hybrida, who had huge debts, said, oh, yeah, that sounds great to me, you know. So he just supported Cicero in whatever he did and kept quiet. It's crazy to go through all that effort to become elected consul and then just kind of take a step back and <laughs> put it on cruise control. <laughs> yeah, they say that he wasn't fit to lead anybody, Antonius. Why is that? I don't know. There's varying descriptions. Some say that he's thuggish. Some say that he's uh, a coward. Quintus, Cicero's brother, calls him a coward. But you, you remember he was close with Catiline and was even probably in on the conspiracy. And there's even one story of Catiline and his supporters, and I think think, and I might be wrong on this, but I think Antonius was part of this group 
sacrificed a young boy, chopped up his body and, and consumed it themselves while taking an oath to uh, overthrow the government. Now, whether any of that's true, true or not, who knows, you know? But Antonius was kind of originally on these guys' sides, but when he became elected consul, it wasn't really in his interest anymore to keep on conspiring like that, right? So he marches on Catiline. Catiline sees this, half his army's gone. He needs to buy time to train his troops. He, he's, he's not ready for this fight yet. And the Roman Republic armies probably, or is, far bigger than his and their veteran legions, right? So he retreats and he starts moving northwards and he goes through the mountains to try to, you know, take a, a less used path. But there's another army in northern Italy that's also under control of the Republic under a praetor. And this praetor guesses that he thinks Catiline's going to take these mountain passes. And then he captures some prisoners, probably some scouts of Catiline's army. And they say, yeah, well, that's the path that they're taking. So then he's confirmed in his suspicion and he moves his army as quick as he can to block the exit to the pass. And so Catiline gets to the end and he sees this army blocking him. He goes to turn back, but Antonius's army has already entered, you know, the beginning of the pass. So Catiline's army's trapped. Wow. So is it pretty much end there? Do they actually, does he try to get out of there? So here's what happens. Catiline sees that there's no chance of escape and he decides to fight. And so do all of his troops. So what he does is, he dismisses his own horse and all of his commander's horses as well. And the reason, and this was a very symbolic gesture to the troops. This meant, hey, you know, I'm going to fight on an equal playing field with you. The danger is going to be equal to me as it is to you. And most importantly, if things go bad, the top brass in the army can't run away because they have horses. They are on foot like everybody else. There is no chance to run. And this is actually a move that Caesar will do later in his life. And there's advantages to it. The advantage is that, you know, your troops see that you're there to fight to the death with them and you're not going anywhere and they're going to fight a lot harder because of that. The disadvantages are if you're not on horseback, you're not as mobile. You can't, you know, run, you can't ride around the army and, you know, haul troops to this area and you can't see over everybody's heads and see, oh, this area's in trouble, send reinforcements. So you lose a lot of your mobility as a commander and you lose your sight as a commander but you boost your troops' morale. So Catiline does this not just for himself, but all of his commanders, dismisses all their horses. He says, your fate troops, you know, my fate troops will be the same as yours. And then Catiline organizes all of his forces uh, into a formation, and he gives them all a speech, and he tells them that the pass is narrow, and, and one of the benefits to them is going to be that the enemy, yes, they're much superior in numbers, but they can't all get to Catiline's army at once because it's narrow, you know, kind of like Thermopylae with the 300 Spartans. So, you know, they expect that can help them. And he puts some of his legates, uh, the one guy, Manlius, he puts them either on the left or the right, and he puts another guy on the other side to command those sides of the army. And he himself takes the center, uh, along with the eagle, which Gaius Marius had used in the Cimbrian War. So it's funny, because even though Catiline was a supporter of Sola, he has this Marius eagle, right? That he seems to prize so much. And he's a populari like Marius was. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you wonder if it was just out of convenience that he was working with, with Sola or what it was. Yeah, it, it could very well be. I mean, a lot of people worked so out of convenience because you had to kill people and take their property. It's an opportunity yeah. dream. Yeah. Now, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was just going to say about you know, Catiline 
jumping off the horse, being willing to fight with his army. I wonder now, like, you know, was he sincere all along about the whole, the whole movement that he was willing to do that. But then again, it could just be again that, you know, he is a risk taker and this is like the ultimate risk. He has this, this army here is, he's, you know, fighting this big battle against, um, his enemies. And maybe it was just that again, the thrill of the doing something bad like that. Yeah. But it is starting starting to make you wonder, you know, at first you almost assume that he's just cynical and just using these people, you know, and it doesn't have any intention or doesn't really believe what he says. But, you know, putting himself through physical danger like this, I don't know, your opinion, opinion of him gets a little bit higher, right? Yeah, yeah. And Antonius, with his army, will actually claim that he's got some kind of foot ailment or maybe gout, and he won't <laughs> go with his army. And he'll huh. put one of his subordinates in charge of it. The guy's name is Petrius. Uh, <laughs> maybe Quintus' uh, sister's brother is right about him being a coward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But some say it's because he's afraid. Some say it's because he just didn't want to fight his old buddy Catiline. It's you know. That's and, true. Yeah. And Patrius is is actually like a, a veteran of the army and has been with the army 20, 30 years and knows all the soldiers. So he's a good guy to command on the Republic side. Now, I want to read the way Salas talks about this battle because he does a great job of describing it. So he says, when Petrius, with every reconnoiter completed, meaning all the exploration of the battlefield completed, gave the signal on the bulge, he ordered his cohorts to advance slowly. The enemy, meaning Catalan's forces, did the same. But after a point had been reached where the battle could be joined by skirmishers, they converged quickly with the loudest of shouts, standards at the offensive. They laid aside their lances. The action was conducted with the sword. The veterans, mindful of their old-time prowess, pressed fiercely at close quarters. The enemy, in no way cowardly, resisted, meaning Catalan's forces, in no way cowardly, resisted, the struggle was one of the greatest violence. Meanwhile, Catiline was active in the front line with his unencumbered troops. He helped the flagging, summoned the fit to take over from the uninjured, made every provision, fought hard himself, and often struck the enemy. He performed simultaneously the duties of committed soldier and good commander. So, I mean, look at, like, Catiline's kind of a badass here, right? He's fighting along with his troops on the ground. Like, he's actually putting himself in physical danger while being a general and commanding, you know, for the troops and encouraging them. Yeah, I mean, who knows if he had won, carried out this, this revolution and, and installed some new order in Rome, then maybe we'd remember him as being a great man. Yeah, yeah. So, Salas goes on. When Petrius, contrary to what he had expected, saw that the great strength of Catiline's exertions, he led his Praetorian cohort, which is like his best cohort, into the enemy's center where Catiline is, and having caused great confusion there, killed them as well as others who resisted in various other places. Then from the flanks on both sides, he attacked the rest. Manlius, which is you know one of his subordinates on the one flank, and the Faisulin, which is the subordinate on the other flank of Catiline's, fell fighting amongst the foremost. As for Catiline, after he saw his forces routed and himself with only a few left, mindful of his lineage and his old-time status, he rushed into the thickest of the enemy, and there, fighting was stabbed. Wow. Yes, yeah, so he was uh, dedicated to the end, or at least willing to, to risk his life. Ran into the thickest of the enemy and, and fought to the death. And Salas goes on to say, 
quote, but it was only when the battle was over that you could have perceived properly what daring and what strength of purpose there had been in Catiline's army. Almost everyone, after gasping his last, protected with his body the place which he had taken by fighting when alive. Nevertheless, a few whom the Praetorian cohort had scattered from the center had fallen over at somewhat a wider area. Yet all of them with frontal wounds, meaning that nobody ran away. They were all stabbed in the front. They died fighting. Continues, quote, Catiline, however, was discovered far from his own men, amongst the corpses of the enemy, still breathing a little, and retaining on his face the defiance of spirit which he had when alive. In fact, from that entire force, no freeborn citizen was captured, either in battle or in flight. They had no more spared their own lives than those of the enemy. End quote. And that was that was Salus's uh Yeah. Depiction. That was Salus' description so, of, of so the battle. So was he was he there at the battle or is he No, he wasn't there at the battle, but he lived at the same time, so it's you know reasonable to expect that he spoke to many of the people at the battle and knew the commanders, you know, on or at least on the Republic side, because everybody died in Catalan's side, as he said. But it's funny because he's painted throughout the whole story to be this scheming, you know, weasel that's trying to deflower Vestal Virgins and killing his own son. And it makes you wonder if any of that's true when you see him at the end, like fighting to the death along with his troops. He charges into the thickest part of the enemy and, and dies fighting and dies with, with a defiant look on his face. You know, all of his troops die fighting as well. You know, they must have cared a lot about Catiline and, and believed in him to commit to fight to the death like that. You know, nobody tried to surrender. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean... Yeah, everyone's always more complex than some short description or characterization of them. Yeah, yeah. And in the end, this is all civil war for Rome. This is very sad for them, you know. Salus goes on to say, Yet neither had the army of the Roman people achieved a delightful or bloodless victory. All the most committed had either fallen in the battle or retired seriously wounded. As for the many who had emerged from the camp for the purposes of viewing or plundering, and were turning over the enemy corpses, some discovered a friend, others a guest or a relative. Likewise, there were those who recognized their own personal antagonists. Thus, throughout the entire army, delight, sorrow, grief, and joy were variously experienced. And so ended Catiline and his great conspiracy. So, audience, what do you think? Was Catiline as bad as they say? Was he somebody good in the end? Do you think he was painted out to be a monster that he wasn't? Or is he a more complex person? Is he somebody that did all the bad things that he said, but you know was brave when it came to physical danger and fighting with his men? We would love to have you, you know, leave us a review in the podcast store and just let us know your thoughts on that because it is, a, it is an interesting topic. But we're going to end the podcast there. Thank you for listening. Feel free to reach out to us on social media. I think Twitter and Instagram. Actually, I have no idea what the handles are, but it's the March of History. Uh, you should see it. I haven't done anything on them at the recording of this episode, but I think by the time this is released, we should have those up and running. But thank you for listening, and we'll we'll be back next time on the March of History.